Welcome to the Mark Cameron Show. We find out why people do what they do, how they do it, and what the future of their work is. My guest today is James Brown. I've known James a few years now. We've played music together. He is a phenomenal guitarist, but I found something out about him recently. The man invented a language, as in a whole language. So I had to ask him about it. Brilliant. It's James Brown. James, thank you for coming on. Anytime, anytime. It's good to see you. Um, so you have created a language. That was the coolest thing that I've seen probably anyone do over lockdown. So I'm <laughs> totally fascinated about this. Uh, so tell us about it and, and then we'll hear how it all came about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I think, uh, as I think, you know, we were saying beforehand, someone had said on Facebook, it was the dorkiest thing they'd seen someone do, and they loved it. So <laughs> I'm happy to fill that space. Yeah, um, I suppose I've just always really been interested in language. Um, more, uh, you know, not so much just learning languages, but the history behind them and the sounds and how they evolve over time, how they're used in different contexts. Um, I, I have just always found them really interesting. I think, you know, language is such an important facet of what it means to be human. And it's just something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. So over the past few years, I think I've been working on various, you know, con bits and pieces of working on my own languages, more as like, an artistic endeavor than yeah. to have anyone actually speak them or use them. Um, that's kind of secondary. That's not really the purpose of why I'm making them. It's just to make something that I'm proud of that I think is interesting. Um, as with any artistic project, you know, you try and get something off the ground. If it's the first time you're yeah. doing it, it's quite tricky. Um, inevitably, the first few times you do it, they're sketches and you have to write them off. Uh, but last September I had an idea to make not just one but a whole family tree of languages so in the same way that French Italian Spanish are related to each other because they come from Latin I wanted to have a few languages that ultimately descend from the same one but that have differences between them wow and all of them are part of a language structure that you have created yeah, essentially. So so there's a few different approaches that you can take to making a constructed language or conlanging. You can go down the road of trying to make a language that you want everyone to speak in the world as like a lingua franca, you know, like a universal language yeah. to communicate in. So people had tried like Esperanto, some people might be familiar with. Um, another one in the 1900s was Volapük. Or you can go down the road of making an art line, which is just an artistic language, something you know that, that you're making for the sake of it. And the specific way that I made mine was I made the proto-language, so the first language first, and I fleshed out its grammar, the way that it deals with nouns, verbs, adjectives, all that kind of thing, um, <clears throat> what kind of words are possible and what words aren't possible. And then you just apply changes to it. You know, one sound turns into another sound. This grammatical feature gets replaced by another grammatical feature. This sound disappears. This thing comes in to fill the gap. And then you branch it off so that at certain points, one language has one change and another one doesn't. And then you have two different kind of branches of the same family tree. And if you apply enough changes, you'll end up with a language that doesn't look or resemble your first language really very much um and it's it really the purpose of that process is because it embeds irregularity into the language yeah. so when i say irregularity i mean why would we say um i looked and so we would say i look and i looked but we don't say i see and i seed we say i saw yes. and the reason for that irregularity is because at some point in the language's history, something happened. Either the word saw was resistant to taking on the suffix ed, which you would put yeah. on other verbs, or there was a sound change that it was resistant to. 
and that's what gives real languages their feel. But you can only really do that by embedding those irregularities in this long structure from the proto-language to the evolved language. So how did you form the proto-language that then formed the, the one that I've seen the video of? Uh, Agreri, is that right? Agere. Agere. I love that you're correcting me on your own language. I, <laughs> I, I think, I, well, no one has seen like my extended grammar of it. No one has a dictionary. So I think I'm the only person in the world qualified to correct people <laughs> on it, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, which really kind of, you know, um, appeases my, I, I'm the kind of guy who like, if you use an apostrophe wrong or like use a comma wrong, I'm going to be in there. I'm going to make a comment. <laughs> so the fact that I can do that in my own lang like constructed language is amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that process is, I mean, ultimately, I think with any project, you, you have to start with, and you, you do have to treat it like a project. If you're going to do it seriously as a hobby, you have to start with a goal. So my goal was make a proto-language, have a family tree of languages, and I had to decide which features I wanted the evolved languages to have. And that's quite important because if you are making, ultimately, whatever I make at point A will evolve into language B and then language C and language D. Yeah. Yeah. Language D can't have anything in it that is completely by surprise. It has to come from somewhere. And the easiest way that you can do that is by implanting it in language A. You know, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit like the movie Inception. The deeper in you plant the idea, oh, okay. yeah. you know, the more expressive it can be. So my process for making the proto language first, you have to you start at what's called the phonology. So um, I like to think of it like a house. You know, yeah. first okay. you have the the phonology, which is the sounds of the language. So I would like to think of the phonology as well what's the house made out of are we making it out of wood are we making it out of clay are we making it out of stone out of whatever else you can make a house out of um out of snow whatever and the way that you get those different flavors as it were is you give the language certain consonants so do you want it to basically or you give it certain sounds do you want it to basically be english um an english phonology do you want to throw in some really kind of weird sounds like do you want like a uvular or like do you want weird vowels like and um do you want to implant those and how do you want them to evolve so that was the first step deciding the phonology that i wanted the next step is the phonotactics which is kind of like the shape that you want your building blocks to be okay so you can decide how you how you shape them do you want the uh, so sounds can come together in units called syllables. Do you want there just to be a consonant and a vowel? Do you want a consonant, vowel, and then consonant? And that makes it more complex. Then once you've decided that, you can decide, well, how do I make words? You decide for things like nouns, do you want there to be a singular and a plural, like in English? Or do you want to add other things, like a dual? Um, so singular and plural refer to one thing and more than one thing. A dual refers to two things. It exists in languages like Scottish Gaelic. Do you want that? Do you want to change the word order? Again, like in Scottish Gaelic, where the verb would come before the subject and then the object. Yeah. Um, I realize it's quite difficult to talk about a lot of these concepts without some, you know, background or some kind of understanding of That's it. It's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. Um, and what, what would lead you to decide, I would like to structure it like that or like to structure it differently is it just the tonality of what it does is it the clarity of the communication that it offers or is it again this is art and it's just what occurs to you as enjoyable uh, uh yeah um i think probably the latter yeah. um it, it's well what i did when i was sketching out my language family tree and deciding what i wanted the languages to sound like or to look like was I based each one off a real-world language for inspiration. So the particular family... So Agere is based largely, I think, on um, Greek, classical Greek. So if anyone has a background in... I talk... Um, uh, so as you mentioned, I, I put all this together in a video, which is on YouTube. And within the video, I discuss things like Noun declension, subtypes, verb conjugation, subtypes, the genitive absolute. Um, all of those would take a bit of time to impact, 
but they're all concepts that if you know classical Greek, you're familiar with. So I drew on that. It really, it, I think it sprung, like, how you decide you want the language to be, most of the time, I think, comes from having a natural curiosity when you look at a real-world language. Okay, so if an artist, you know, paints a painting, they look at something in the real world and they're inspired by it to create their own thing. The painting isn't isn't the image that they're seeing, it's their interpretation of the image. Yeah. Or they want to borrow something from the image and then make that their own. Musicians do the same thing. You know, if you're sitting down to write a song, you might listen to another artist and go, I want to make something that's like that. I want to borrow that idea. Uh, it's the same thing with conlanging. So I looked at Greek and I went, I want to borrow some of those ideas. And most of the changes, if not all of the changes that I made in the language's history were directed and designed so that I could produce that. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So you make your decision, you find the 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 top of the tree, and then you um, spread out around there, and you've named them all. And uh, see, seeing that chart, actually, I was just curious that you had created the whole family tree. I thought you just created the final piece, but amazing that you actually have a structure for seven or eight languages. How did you then land at the one that you have shared in that video and um, that, that we're chatting about? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, <clears throat> so I had, um, there's there's a tool that I use online um, called, uh, well, uh, Sound Change Applier 2. And essentially what you can do is you can go in there and you can take all these different words and you can um, put them in, apply a bunch of random changes to them, and then you get an output, right? So so when I was putting together the family tree, I, I kind of, at, at that point, I didn't have as clear an idea, oh, I want this to look like, I had some idea, like a sketch, you know, it's like anything, you have this skeleton idea and then you flush it out. Um, so... For Agere, I knew that I wanted it to be a little bit like Greek. So I had one language that had a lot of changes in that direction. But then there's another language, if you look at the chart, called Sidianes, which is, or no, sorry, Sidanse, which, you know, I have a sketch for that. It's got a ton of other changes that, that are made to it. Um, in terms of In terms of actually producing the language and fleshing it out, I didn't start with Agere. Agere wasn't the end goal. I had made a like a few sound changes, and I ended up with a language which, um, at the time, I had called um, Hopta. So I took this word, Kubada, yeah. which ended up being the word for person, and I evolved it through a few different stages. So Kubada became Hopta, and Hopta was this placeholder name of the language that I was working on. And I developed a bit of a grammar for it. And I realized that actually I didn't really like it. So, but there was the, the makings of something good there. So I took Hopta and I made a few more changes to it. And that word Hopta became Owotte, which from the video is the word for person. So it was kind of like my placeholder term. Yeah. So, and then I gave the languages actual names as I as I fleshed it out more. So my original idea for fleshing out a language, I ended up with, um, so, so the names of these changed, Hopta became Nivie. So Nivie was the original language that I was working on. Um, and I've got like Excel spreadsheets, you know, filled with grammar tables and various things to do with that. Um, but ultimately I wasn't happy with Hopta, so I evolved it into Watte which I've now given the name Agere. And all the names of the languages within that family tree are the names of the languages as they are in Agere. So for example, if you go and you look at the family tree, Agere has a sister language, Avdao, but that isn't the name of that isn't the name of that language in its own people. You know, its people would call it Haft, but Haft has been interpreted as Avdao because Agere doesn't have a sound huh at the beginning. Yeah. So okay. that's kind of that's kind of, you know, an example of the level of detail that you can go into it. Um giving all of these languages names as they would be spoken by the people in the culture as they look out into the world and they call, you know, they see all these different languages and they give them names. 
Dude, so, okay, this is blowing my mind. I mean, the video blew my mind after about <laughs> 90 seconds. It's very cool. And um, what what is it about language then that makes sense to people or that how does language form in people? Um, because, because it just it fascinates me how it is created. I feel quite lazy with language often. <laughs> <laughs> but... I'm fascinated at how you see language developing in people groups and cultures and how they then look at the world through their language. Oh, well, that's really interesting. Um, I think the, the, well, I suppose um, the process of, of language beginning or language developing um, is, is unknown. Um, it isn't fully understood where, language comes from um, within kind of an evolutionary framework. We know that languages evolve over time. We know that Latin evolved to become French, Spanish, Italian, Romanian. But we, and we know that Latin evolved from a language called Proto-Italic, which evolved from Proto-Indo-European, which evolved from we don't know. Because you get so far back in the record of reconstructing Proto-Indo-European as a reconstructed language, we took Latin and Greek and Sanskrit, and we went, these all look similar. Where did they come from? And we reconstructed a language. But no one thinks that Proto-Indo-European was the first language. It, yeah. It's full of irregularities. So it must have come from somewhere. But the problem is, once you get back that far, you're talking about six, 7,000 years, you're beyond a written record of language. Um, the Proto-Indo-European speaking people didn't keep a record of the language they spoke. No one did 6,000 years ago. So, so we don't know. Um, there are various mythologies around the world that, that try and explain where language comes from. Um, but ultimately, we don't know where it comes from. So that that first point, that starting point that a conlanger will take, like my proto-language, yeah. is, is a construction. It's filling in a historical gap. In terms of the way that language evolves in relation to its people, that, that's a really complex issue. Because on the one hand a speaker or a culture, you know, it's, it's that old question, does the language you speak inform your worldview? Does the language that you speak shape the way that you talk about things and think about things and your mm -hmm. cultural values? Mm -hmm. Or is your language shaped by these things? And the answer seems to be a complicated and messy both. <laughs> so, so on the one, it's probably easier to talk about the way that culture impacts language. You know, if you, have a, a group. Um, well, for example, let's take French as an example. Um, the language that was spoken in France uh, 2,000 years ago wasn't French and it wasn't Latin. Um, it was Latin in pockets, but it was the Gaulish language, which is right. more closely related to uh, languages like Gaelic, and Welsh and Cornish and Irish. Um, but it's no longer really spoken there. It's spoken in, in places, um, remains in places, but French has come to dominate it. Well, why? Because the Roman Empire came in 2,000 years ago, set up shop, and over the process of hundreds of years, you know, the government comes in and everyone starts speaking uh, French. So... That's an example of one culture coming in. You know, you have two separate cultures, the Gauls and the Romans. And over time, the Romans come and invade the territory of the Gauls until, and speak their language until a point comes where that language pushes the Gaulish language out. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's one example. Um, but culture um, kind of... Yeah, kind of, you said culture... Yeah, I mean, culture can affect language in, in various different ways. I mean, we're all familiar with the concept of taboo words, right? We have certain words that we won't say. Yeah. I, why? You know, a, a child will ask why, you know, they're not allowed to say the F word, but mommy and daddy can say the F word. It's, it's completely <laughs> yeah. fine. You know, why are we not allowed to say certain words? It seems a bit arbitrary. If you look at some um, languages of um, indigenous North Americans, there are some cases where taboo extends across gender divides so that you would have a word for like bear and you would have the word bear is spoken by a man <clears throat> and the word bear is spoken by a woman. 
um, not necessarily an example of sexism, but just an example of kind of cultural taboo and, yeah. and that arbitrary limit. So that's that's what I find interesting about the way that the culture impacts the speaker, because that's you have to change the way that you speak because the culture is is yeah. imposing some kind of a limit. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating for me where meaning comes into play with language. So you mm. know, there's language as the artistic form, there's language as the mathematic. Um, you apply a rule and it, it takes you know a route and a journey and the sounds change but it's when people attach meaning to words like you say taboos are a great example of that mm. um and why why certain words take on a certain meaning impact strength um and does that then occur phonetically as well so you get um things that sound harsh and and things that land harder mm. um <coughs> but with with languages that you know that people develop where where do you think the meaning making starts connecting to those sounds or where do you get meaning from the the language that you're making well the, the point that you mentioned about sounds you know sounding particularly harsh i think that's that's kind of you know an interesting place to start with this because then you're talking about the aesthetic quality of language there are certain languages that seem to sound nicer to certain people um as an example jrr tolkien um, who is considered the grandfather of constructed languages because he was a philologist, an old term for a linguist, in um, okay. Old English um, at Oxford, I believe. And he developed his el elvish languages as spoken in the Lord of the Rings films. And then he was like, well, I need people to speak them. And then he made the language. So for Tolkien, you sometimes have places that have four or five different names in different languages. And if you listen to those different languages they sound very different to mm -hmm. each other. And that's not a coincidence, that's intentional. So as an example, you have, you know, the Elvish languages that are meant to sound, you know, quite free, free flowing. Um, I'm trying to remember an example that's, um, I laure lantar lassisuri nen noti me veram maraldaron. Like it's that's woo, like mate. woo. Eh. I don't know if you were um, <laughs> giving credit to Elrond or Galadriel <laughs> or confessing your love to Arwen there. But it was very beautiful. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, and those those are the first two lines of a poem, and they're meant to sound quite nice and free flowing because that's the elves, and they have they are an aesthetically beautiful people in terms of not just appearance but their culture. So that should be reflected in the language. But then you have the black speech of Mordor for the one ring, and it's filled with like, Ash Naz Durbatuluk, Ash Naz Gimbatul. It's like, Ash Naz Trakatuluk, Burzumishi Krimbatul. It's like, there's there's more consonants. What, what does that there. mean? Uh, what, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them yeah. all, and then the darkness bind them. And so it's the it's uh, the inscription on the ring, as made yeah. by Sauron, who is the bad guy, so the bad guy speaks a bad language, so it has to sound yeah. bad and it has to sound harsh. All right, so that's an example. And from a linguistic point of view, um, what makes a language beautiful or not beautiful is it's kind of beauty is in the eye of the beholder in this one. Yeah. Um, there are certain sounds that, that sound quite fluid, some that sound quite harsh. So, for example, talking um, for his elvish languages, places are... Uh, uh, kind of high importance on what are called alveolar consonants, consonants that are made by putting your tongue just behind the tip of your teeth. So sounds like uh, s, n, l, r are all alveolar sounds. Whereas um, when you get to uh, the black speech of Mordor, what you have is is uh, you have like the sound sh, which comes in which is post-alveolar. It's made behind the alveolar ridge. And generally what you see within the conline community, because I'm not the only one, there's thousands of people around the world who are interested in this sort of stuff. What you tend to see is people in the conline community will, if they're trying to make a nice sounding language, they'll make a lot of alveolar consonants. So it sounds like something like an elvish language. If they're trying to make something that sounds harsh, they might take inspiration from a language like Arabic, which just sounds like, <laughs> like uh, yeah, so, yeah. so the name of the of the prophet, we pronounce it Mohammed, but the actual sound is made further back in the throat. So it's Mohammed, Mohammed. So it's yeah. like, that's an example to an, to an Arabic speaker that might sound beautiful. And they, 
an Arabic conlang or, you know, Arabic-speaking conlang might want to include that in the conlang. To an English speaker, that sounds quite harsh and foreign. So they might include it to make it sound harsh and foreign. Yeah. So um, I'm curious, as you know, you, you chip under the surface and you get that kind of universal experience of language uh, in the sounds. Um, if there are elements of language that are innate in people. So, for example, some of the um, mythical archetypes been reading through in, in Joseph Campbell um, or Carl Jung would unpack these uh, archetypal figures that appear, you know, that these warriors, kings, sages, lovers, and they mm, are presented yeah. in their myths and uh, presented in art, in early art. And then, um, you know, we, we grab hold of them and create movie and modern myth out of them. But there was mm, something mm-hmm. kind of universal about some of these figures that seem to appear in uh, in dreams or seem to appear in their myths even mm, before mm. they were connected as cultures yeah. um and they're you know very very refined down lord of the rings is a that great example of them um but is there anything in language that you think is kind of innate in people or that popped up in these cultures before they mixed and before they they came together do you think there's um sounds or tones or, or sentiment and language that exists innately mm. yeah good good question um this kind of cuts to the heart of um i'm not sure if you're familiar with noam chomsky um yeah possibly he, well he's best known at least to me as a linguist he developed it and also to other people as um a left-wing political commentator as well he he kind of went from linguist to political commentator um he has this theory of universal grammar which is the idea that within every speaker essentially within every human there is this mental kind of template it's like a bunch of switches you know um and as you learn a language these switches already exist within your head but you turn them on and off or they have different levels and you set the levels which is his attempt to get back to to language being kind of prior, that language is foremost within the brain, that that we already have all of this. It's not that we are, you know, blank slates. Yeah. It's that we already have this innate propensity towards language. And I suppose if you want to put that within an evolutionary context, um, if you're learning a language, like it's kind of a chicken and the egg situation. Well, what came first? You know, did did the were the switches there and waiting to be activated, or did, were we at some point blank slates and then over the course of a long period of time did we develop this? That's a really really difficult question to to answer. I mean, um, because the snapshot that we have of language within an evolutionary history goes back a few thousand years doesn't go back tens of thousand years or hundreds of thousand yeah. years when spoken language is thought to have to have arisen. So we can't get to, can't really get to it. So it's a difficult question to answer. But in terms of the innateness of language across culture, I think it's it th- there is on a very human level this awareness that language is is incredibly important in setting humans apart in defining our experience of of the world. It's the medium through which we have, you know, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. It's the medium through which um, cultures have passed down their oral tradition. Um, it's the yeah. medium through which, through which we make friendships or we argue with each other. Um, I think language is, in, is hugely important. And whether you think that spoken or written language is innate, I think there is this desire within humans to, to communicate with each yeah. other. I, yeah. I don't know much about uh, Jung and archetypes, unfortunately, but all of those kind of uh, those, it is a sense of myth and mythology, you know, yeah. that, and through language, we are able to communicate, communicate some of these phrases, which interestingly, yeah. in some languages, um, leads to, you know, if you have um, kind of certain, certain, uh, like, figures or like concepts that are based on individuals right so we have we have the word i'm thinking of is the word herculean which ultimately comes from hercules or heracles 
so this Greek myth of a great warrior, which is so profound in our language that we had to develop, or we didn't have to, but we did. We developed an adjective to describe a Herculean task, yeah. which kind of embeds that, that you know, concept of figure yeah 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 yeah. and it's and it sums up there's the beauty of it isn't it It sums up an entire narrative a story a history in Mm. a you know maybe another language sums up gives it to us for something that we can then connect to um yeah and and continue um or you know an odyssey uh being Mm. a a thinking of a great big story or something epic um, Mm and connects us there and and um and that journey where you know we have these these innate languages maybe waking up or these these connections the desire to to communicate and connect um as people do you think you know where does language go from here in the last few hundred years of course there's been a a coming together of people um so much of the division and tension that we face now um seems to me it's it's either lack of of listening or a misunderstanding Mm. of someone else's intention or a a misunderstanding of complex motivations that go on in people Mm. and so Mm. when we think about you know that we've boiled so much of our thinking down to two-sided dualisms the left and the right politically the Mm. um Mm. you know there was the, the the yes and the no the in and the out um these these kind of simplistic breakdowns um which are now erupting you know we see them erupting in in um riots or protests or we just feel like there's a polarization going on Mm, mm -hmm. in which ways could language help us solve that or in which ways has language been responsible for some of that lack of understanding Where, where does language evolve to help us actually understand each other yeah yeah well i suppose the the first question when looking at you know if if your goal is to to um, kind of smooth over the division so that everyone, even if they disagree with each other, um, they're fundamentally able to communicate with each other. If that's the goal, then I suppose language language is at the forefront of that because the way that you communicate your ideas to someone is through the medium of language, whether it's written or spoken. The most important thing I think is, you know, it's is it an issue with language or is it an issue with communication more widely? Um, I think that miscommunication is is one of these things that isn't anyone's fault. You know, if you are, are um, if you are intentionally saying something to do someone harm, you know, intentionally kind of speaking in a way that that kind of is, is meant to upset someone, it might be slightly different. But if you say something and someone is annoyed by it, offended by it, um, or if they mean a different thing, if the word means something different to them than it does to you, then in most circumstances, it's because you're miscommunicating. Person A is talking about one thing and person B is talking about another. So as the conversation progresses, so you're talking about you know the left and right discussion panels and things, if they're fundamentally talking about the wrong thing or they are talking about something within a context. So language doesn't exist in isolation. It exists within a culture, mm. within a context. Mm. And it's that context, which is, which is really important. Um, I'd, I was, as an example, I was having a, a conversation with, uh, with my girlfriend a few days ago and she's a therapist and we were talking about, I, I can't remember precisely what it was. Um, well, I do. I just, I, I just don't want to say on a podcast. <laughs> but uh, deep waters now. <laughs> I don't, don't want to put my foot there. And we were talking about this, and she made a really interesting, interesting point. She was saying, you know, that James, when you communicate these things, you're able to disengage that, that kind of, like, you're emotionally sensitive to it. But the most important thing is kind of the looking through the logical. Well, this leads to this, and this leads to this, and this mm-hmm. is the outcome. Whereas she is putting it into its emotional context. How is let's suppose that the person that we're talking about is within this context. How, how is that going to affect them? And inevitably we ended up having like the conversation got more and more tense until at the end we were like, we both agree with each other, but why was this tense? And it's because one person's bringing, you know, an emotional aspect to it and the other person's not. And you need to clarify that in order to have a conversation. So when I see people 
um, erupting into comment wars and disagreeing with each other and you know that kind of level of division because of course we have been in amicable disagreements with people we do it all the time as part of our experience yeah um what makes a disagreement unamicable i think sometimes it's you know it's because people aren't people just they aren't using the same language so just right like speaking the same language some people have thought that the way to world harmony and peace is to create a language and everyone speaks the same language but then you have a problem whose language do you pick do you make up a language yeah that seems to be an experiment that is useful is you know works in pockets the esperanto yeah. speaking community as an example was that um has there been a couple of attempts at that this global language yeah it it became not so much recently that i'm aware of but the most popular example is esperanto which okay. um was made by uh, dr zamenhof in poland in i think it was the mid to late 1900s and the purpose of it was he zamenhof lived in a community where you know, you had, I think, some Polish speakers and some German speakers, and you had four or five different language communities living within one town. And he wanted them all to be able to talk to each other. So he made a language and, you know, wanted them to speak to each other. And then, uh, you know, presumably the movement grew until, you know, it became very, very popular at one point to all be learning this language Esperanto. Yeah. And which, with, you know, valiant effort, it still exists to this day. I've learned some Esperanto, I think most conlangers have. Going back to Tolkien, Tolkien didn't like Esperanto because it was a language without a culture, and he thought, in order to have a language, you need a culture. Uh, fascinating. You, need a, yeah. you, you need that myth. You need, yeah. you know, the ideology with it. Wow, yeah, because, um, I mean, that, that's fascinating when thinking a bit about Dawkins and... Um, his introduction of mimetics, you know, ideas working like genes that they mm. uh, they have a context that they can catch, that can be replicated, that can adapt, and um, you know, language being in the in the jungle of of memes mm. that are there, <laughs> and obviously memes now giving us as different meaning. But that part of where your art is, your language is, your virtues, your values, mm. you shovel mm. them together, you get these containers for it that kind of define an age you know mm, maybe it's like mm. that's the zeitgeist of the time and other temporary but yeah, um yeah. fascinating that could you invent that without it having context within people um mm. i suppose if it catches on and lasts long enough and can be replicated adapted uh, and it grew and grew you know you wonder if tolkien now would back it or, <laughs> or if he'd um, be writing his 15th lord of the rings book um, <laughs> I would, you know, I would hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, is there, I wonder where, where are the other languages forming? Uh, like, are memes language? Are GIFs language? Are they, are images and, and video content, are they replacing some um, of what we would use words for to try and give a more global understanding? Um, and and are, is that going to unify? Is that going to drive us forward? Mm, mm. yeah it's it's an interesting question um i you know the, the what springs to my mind is this idea of um kind of if if we strip it right back to common emotions across human culture uh, you know i can't think of the study and um, this is one of these things that i've seen a few places online so so i think you know uh, take it with a pinch of salt but this idea of like common emotions right that humans are able irrespective of culture uh, are able to communicate through six primary emotions yeah. and that kind of I, I don't know how kind of how true that is but if it were to be true then that you know that kind of speaks to the innateness of of emotion and the innateness yes. of of pictures and kind of a common toolbox from which we might not be able to discuss lofty political ideas of left and right and you know Jungian archetypes but we can have that common element of the yeah. human experience with yeah. with each other. And there was, um, I, love, I love that, it rings a bell from some stuff we've been looking at where you've got fear, anger, joy, sadness, mm. contempt, mm. disgust, and um, surprise, um, which which is cool, surprise, that kind of differentiates or the <gasps> moment of, yeah. <laughs> does it go, do you go into joy or do you go into fear and rage? Mm. Um, and and it, I mean, lovely, you know, you can, see 
those six pieces, actually, if we were to build our understanding of those, build our language to help get containers for them, um, therein, I guess, we're looking at understanding. I suppose just now, if we were perhaps developing our containers for people's sadness, maybe over the last year, mm, we've tried mm. to be more accepting as a culture that's... <laughs> You know the lockdown situation comes with a natural sadness and we've got more of a container for that mm, um mm-hmm. we're maybe also unearthing people's disgust at mm, certain mm-hmm. societal issues and working out what's the public container for disgust is it is it outrage over injustice um is it, or is it that there are certain things that we're not sure if we can be uh, fearful of anymore with how we talk about left and right mm, and, mm. and larger justice issues. Um, but beautiful there, if, yeah. If, can language help us to connect with basic emotions? Mm, um, mm-hmm. I love hearing it, mate. And uh, so you've got like your tokens and your great language creators. And um, where, you know, what what's the future of of language for you? Um, what's I it mean, going to? in terms in terms of kind of in the real world yeah well i mean yeah the future of language is something that can be quite difficult to predict um what what we do know is that when you look back on language uh you know that language changes in certain ways there are specific sound changes that are common there are specific ways in which uh certain words will change their meaning uh specific ways in which cultures interact with each other and borrow words from each other so so uh, i think it's fairly reasonable to say that that process will continue you know language is never static language is constantly in the process of changing in the world of uh the internet and social media there's a new term coined every five minutes and it's exposed to the world and some of them catch and some of them don't and everyone's you know um like a, a meme is a good example a meme uh, is an idea first proposed by evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins yeah. in a book where I think he's talking, he's talking about evolutionary biology. But if you ask a person on the street what a meme is, they'll show you a funny <laughs> video with a caption of, you know, I don't know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson saying something funny out of a, a movie from, you know, the early 2000s. Like that's, <laughs> that's an example, right? So a word that was coined in one place has taken on a new meaning and then spread out to the world and yeah. has a different meaning. Um, and in the world of, you know, the online media, I think coming back to your point earlier about communication and what ways communication changing, uh, you know, are the ways in which communication is that spoken and written communication are kind of being replaced by other things. I think the online sphere allows us to do something that we weren't able to do 150 years ago um, with the world which is to write something down to someone in real time with no context of the person's facial expressions, their tone of Mm. voice. We don't see them. We're able to type something out and have a long extended argument with someone and we never understand their tone. I think that that's that's just, that's a recipe for miscommunication. If things Mm. continue like that, uh, then it's unsurprising that there is miscommunication and, and division, I think. Um, so in terms of where language is going, I, I I think it's interesting because a lot of the conversations that we have around language in the modern era seem to be drawn not from a place of, oh, we've just been invaded by Norway. Do we all start speaking Norwegian as an example? <laughs> Apologies yeah. to pick on Norway, <laughs> but uh, they were you know, ready that... to do it to Scotland. I think they were also. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, you know, my mom's from Shetland, so if you look at the place names in Shetland, <clears throat> they all come from Old Norse, so spoken yeah. by the Vikings. But the Vikings arrived and displaced the original Pictish people who were living there, and none of their language remains. You know, so that was a conversation that was being had around eight nine hundred AD. You know, do we start speaking Old Norse? We are no longer asking that question. Instead, we're asking questions about um, how can I facilitate my language to make you feel more comfortable? There was the conversation about which pronouns do we use for people? How do we refer to people? Um, uh, when we're talking about things like social justice issues like race, if 
I say racism and you say racism, do we mean the same thing? Mm. Um, those seem to be the conversations that are being had in the public sphere around language. Those aren't new conversations. Those are conversations which, which you know, um, indigenous Native American people will have been having hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, which, you know, led to, as I mentioned, kind of divides between male-specific language, female-specific mm. language. So these things aren't new. Um, I think it would be wrong to think that they are new. They're being had in different ways with with the medium of social media. So, yeah, it's I'm I'm tempted to say that language change isn't isn't always morally good or morally neutral. The change itself isn't doesn't have a moral you know, or aesthetic right. quality to it. It's the context in which it exists that that gives it wow. gives it that. Which is which unfortunately um <laughs> is is very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And um oh, mate, I love that you you invented a language and then got us thinking about how uh how we heal <laughs> global conversation. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> it's the next step from Twitter. <laughs> and um you know, like I, I love it because you know your passions do eke into many areas, which is class. I didn't actually mm. know language in this form um, was was right up there. I knew that Tolkien was high on your um, <laughs> list of favorite people, but um, love how your passion leaks in there. Another thing that you're been smashing out recently mate, is your guitar work, and we've. Um, played in many bands in different contexts but <laughs> tell us like how how's the music stuff feeling and what's what's that been like over the last year just diving at at uh, your passion for music yeah music's an interesting one right <laughs> so you know uh, in the same way that you have a word and language that exists within a context i think the, the you know the passion for music is innate but the ability to express that is dependent on a context and the context for the past 12 months has been no live gigs, no open mics, no ability for people really to come together and make music. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, you and I have, have done some kind of socially distanced, you know, band yeah. stuff over yeah. the past year. Um, so you'll know what it's like. There are constraints on it. There's constraints on the creative process. And I think for me, I'm such an extrovert that I need to be around people and I get yeah. my musical ideas from people. So in terms of putting together songs, like there's there's a guy at work occasionally it's just like, oh, how's the music going? And I'm like, well, I haven't really I haven't really done much with it. Sure. Putting together some things, but it's a long, slow process. There's not like the quick firing of ideas yeah. Um, yeah. that you have within a room. So a lot of my passion for music recently has been directed towards kind of taking that skill that i've already developed in terms of specifically in terms of guitar playing and expanding that um i think to to the outside it might seem like i'm a fairly proficient guitar player but within my own experience of playing guitar i just go oh there's a gap there i don't know i don't know that right. i i wish i could you know launch into kind of not so much scales necessarily i'm kind of okay at the scale stuff but it's like the patterns and the techniques and can i go here and what's the timing for this bit and can i like learn this new right hand technique to allow me to do this run better that kind of thing so yeah. my passion i think has been poured into um so i've been poured into um both developing the con line recently yeah. but also developing my skills as a guitar player and yeah. happy to be able to look at my guitar playing and go, I couldn't do that 12 months ago. So I'm chuffed yeah, for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mentioned, you know, how, how you do this, you know, how your, how your mind works on it. What, what sort of day, do you do daily habits? Do you chase after just curiosity? What, what are the things you do that make this work that give you that, inspiration to go after language or to pursue music in that mm, way mm. yeah i wish i was a daily habits kind of guy <laughs> i i wish you know i have i have tried so many times to like get into a daily habit and whether it's like waking up at a concrete time or reading a certain number of pages of a book every day or doing these guitar exercises um 
Uh, but I've, you know, that's, that, com- that doesn't come naturally to me. My natural uh, propensity is towards, like, like I become obsessively addicted with one hobby yeah. for a while. Like, the conline thing was all I did for, like, a few weeks. And before that, it was the guitar. That was all yeah. I was doing. Yeah. And before that, I tried to read a book. And I'm still about halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of the habits, <laughs> like in terms of the habits to develop, I suppose it comes back to that question of well, what's your goal, right? If if your, um, if your goal is, well, so uh, guitarist, you'll be familiar with Mark Tremonti from Creed and Alter Bridge. Oh, well, one, one of my favorite. My- my deep joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Martin I mean, Monte Creed, Alter Bridge. He's I mean, the man is the man is a legendary guitar player. And I think he was last year voted the best guitar player of, of you know the twenty first century. Um nice. just insanely talented. And also, if you listen to him speak, uh, uh, kind of guru, guitar guru. Wow. Because and he makes this really interesting point. He said that that in order to maintain a certain level of skill, you have to play a certain amount, you know, fairly regularly. Uh, so he said that for himself, I think he plays for half an hour to an hour every day, um, or two hours, up to two hours. He used Guthrie Govan as an example, if anyone's heard Guthrie Govan, just what that man can do is envious. And he, mu- he must play for the same length of time or more. Like, in order yeah. to maintain a certain level of skill, you need you need to play for like half an hour a day just to keep that up and if you want to learn more you have to play more than that so in terms of my habits yeah. i think it's kind of like i pick up the guitar for when i'm going through my obsessive periods i can play guitar for three hours a day just mm-hmm. no problems um yeah. otherwise i think to i found that to maintain my level of skill ideally i need to be playing for you know 15 minutes half an hour every day yeah. um but the real progress is for me made not so much in in that daily maintenance of a habit it's it is in those quick bursts which might work for something like guitar playing might not work if you're trying to you know like uh i don't know lose weight gain weight like yeah Yeah. there there are certain things that i think you can you can just spend less time on yeah um and that's interesting because I think the different ways people do development are being mm. credited at the moment. I really like that. Like I naturally, uh, certain ways of goal setting and certain myths of habit setting don't occur to me as natural. Mm. But mm. anything around uh, curiosity, progress, probably at times just zoning in on on an idea, a concept <laughs> and running after it. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting how useful that's becoming. And, and sort of valuing the, the measurement and progress that can go on in that almost retrospectively because it's just chasing after something. There is that, um, the muse, as Stephen Pressfield calls it, in, in The War of Art, writing mm, about mm. chasing after something that, yes, you create the space to let that, uh, to let the, the magic come or to let the moment come and you, you do set aside the time. But there is something in chasing uh, curiosity as a, as a phenomenal way of development and we were reflecting mm-hmm. on some of the ways that, that organizations are working at the minute. It's like you can't do year planning. You can do two months planning, <laughs> but that actually you have clearer vision for five years or 10 years than ever before. So it's like, yeah, yeah. I know where we'll be in 10 years. I got I got the vision <laughs> of five, but man, I can't plan six months. It's two months. And it, and it yeah, almost yeah. means like, if you give yourself that two month thing, I'm like, well, that sounds about right for most of my little obsessions or the things that get me very curious probably a couple months and then I'm bored yeah. but there's yeah. a real interesting thing of um that different way of development that might suit the the artist mm. and might suit the, mm. the curious mm. uh, and the obsessive mm. for a yeah. while uh, uh, to make this new world into something quite fascinating for us yeah, yeah. that that's yeah that. absolutely I mean that kind of you know that uh, as you put it kind of that you know obsession with the curious i think it is that it is that kind of curiosity if i look back at anything that i've i've kind of created um as a matter of a hobby rather than in a work context where very often you know you've been given work and you're expected to to do something and and kind of run with it um 
you know, the goal was set by someone else. But in my own experience, whether it's writing a song or, you know, a con line, my best ideas have been the ones that, like, I just get an idea and I find myself becoming, like, um, restlessly interested yeah. and curious about it. Like, you know, the kind of thing that keeps you up, like, the kind of thing that you're just like, I can't, I can't stop thinking about this. I need to go. I need to do this. Like, if it's songwriting, I need to get this song down. I need this guitar. Yeah. I can hear, like... I think most musicians, if you know, if you go through that songwriting process for long enough, you you kind of get annoyed that you can't record your own your own brain because you can hear the song, yeah. you can hear how it develops, but, but you can't remember it. So you need to go through it, and you need to be like, That's right. like what, you need to is, explain it to other people and hope that they'll create it. Well, I was I was blown away that there is a term for this. I think is it is it audiation. Audiation is the process where, like, it's it's that ability that if I can hear, like, if I can hear a song or I can hear a note in my head, like, ah, I heard the note in my head before I I ushered it out, right? So yeah, it's that like, if you can expand that to a song, you can hear an entire song that doesn't exist that you've made up and it's in your head, and you need to get it down. Similarly in conlanging, I can see this entire like verb conjugation <laughs> system yeah. and i yeah. just need to, i just need to get it out and need to get it on paper and it's when it's when the need to get that idea out is so um yeah it's it's restless like you need yeah. to you need to get it out and you're passionate about it so if you're passionate yeah. about it um my kind of you know philosophy as well if you're passionate about it and you can do it like then do it like yeah, just, just, gonna, just just yeah, do it. yeah just like go for it like you yeah. know you're not you're not gonna hurt anyone by writing a song like go for it <laughs> yeah yeah totally totally that has love of the audiation I didn't, I didn't actually know that had a name that's that's very cool i think that that's the name right. I think yeah I, again one <laughs> of these things i saw on google <laughs> yes <Yeah. So. laughs> um and and you know it has been a kind of well year we're in where are we in march mm. 2021 at yeah. the moment and um you know one of the things people a lot of people are working out is how do we stay curious and well over this time and, and and going forward uh you know one of the things you've been exploring is is around mental health and um mm -hmm. how to keep yourself um you know well and, and going over this last time what's it been like for you what you learn and what you uh what's keeping you keep you going yeah um I mean, I think that the importance of, of mental health has been important in the past few years. Anyway, it's been, you know, gaining momentum, but it really has has picked up speed over the past year. Um, so my day job is working in, in mental health as a civil servant. And I've seen the way that over the past year, teams have had to come together and put together new pieces of work. There have been public awareness campaigns around, you know, uh, the breathing space uh campaign or, or rather you know breathing space resource um the clear your head campaign there's been kind of more investment in mental health services yeah. um really over the past year mental health i've seen the way that the the workforce has expanded and the resources have expanded and people are talking about it more and they're talking about it more because they're experiencing it more and mm -hmm. they're experiencing it and they don't have an outlet because you can't go to the pub and, you know, have a drink and a pub lunch yeah. for somebody to talk about it. Like, yeah. And I think that, you know, you can work in mental health and, and, you know, it just makes you more acutely aware of your own. I remember last year we were told to start working from home on, I can't remember precisely the day, but it was, uh, it was a Tuesday and by the Friday, I was sick fed up of working on my own. I was like, I'm never going to get through this. I'm never going to get through three months of lockdown. This is going to be terrible. So I made the decision to go back home up yeah. north because um, my family stay up north. And that was a great idea because you're being around people. Yeah. Some people haven't been as fortunate to, to go out. So I think it's, you know, it's in terms of managing I would never tell someone else how to manage their own mental health or how to direct their own. I mean, you can, only, it's such a subjective thing. You can only ever offer some kind of suggestions and ideas, but um, for me, things like being able to, to get out for walks every day, yeah. having some kind of a routine, having projects that I'm working on, speaking to family and friends regularly. I mean, yeah. it, it has led, I think a lot of people, 
well, we were talking about, you know, language in the modern era and new terms. Zoom fatigue is one of these yeah. terms that we've had. It didn't exist a year ago. Um, and, you know, we were having that in real life. I mean, if you went and spoke to, if you had your day job and then you were kind of going out and doing something five nights of the week, then come Saturday, you're going to be shattered. It's a similar thing we kind of yeah. Zoom. But, but yeah, also that exhaustion of just not seeing people. Um, yeah. For me, having that routine was important, um, especially kind of during winter. I don't usually get seasonal affective disorder, but being in Scotland, it it is, you know, yeah. like it is something that oh, a lot of people... It's dark. It's cold. Yeah. <laughs> it's dark. It's cold. It's windy. It's, it's not fun. And you're locked down and you're having to work from home and it can all become a bit much. So just, I think the most important thing in terms of promoting your positive well-being is just to give yourself that space mm. to think about it you know to to allow yourself to to process it and you know you don't have to process it in in great depth if you don't want to no one's asking anyone to join you know like a talking group or anything if they don't yeah. feel comfortable but yeah. just having that that kind of checklist well if i'm feeling feeling a bit down what do i do build that into my routine as much as i can mm -hmm. um you know those kind of coping mechanisms and yeah. making sure that i've got someone to talk to i mean it comes yeah. back comes down again to that kind of aspect of communication and language yeah. the frustration yeah. that you feel when you're when you're in like a call with someone and the the wi-fi starts putting up because that doesn't happen in real life the person doesn't <laughs> like the person doesn't like fade in and out and chop yeah. and change and you can see them, but you can't hear them. I can hear you, but I can't see like that doesn't happen in real life. And so yeah. it's quite a disruptive thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, just promoting, you know, just, you know, mental health is, uh, it's fluid. It's variable between people. Um, like language, it changes, but and it's, you know. it's interesting again, like these different things that have, showing up as signals i think mm. that's been interesting is um not to fear when a mood comes if it's at that level of mood and energy change and management mm. um you know i think it was quite easy to have i was have plenty existential crisis through it all. <laughs> but um actually it was the moments of of trying to be trying to be more like you know maybe again like you say sitting in that rational space with it for a minute um to be helpful doing that okay so i've not been out i've not been chatting to folks saying i'm feeling done and mm -hmm. been eating badly stop my vitamins stop my you know mushroom coffee or whatever <laughs> that's <having this laughs> helping me <laughs> just up 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 and then going oh look at that and, and it was the end of january i remember the end of january it was like everyone just it snuck up on everyone and everyone was just dialed yeah down yeah, yeah. Like 15 percent. nobody was at their wits end and nobody was on top of the world it was just everyone was a wee bit kind of blurred and then at the end of january i was like oh yeah okay so this is this is what happens when uh you haven't you know tended to these 15 options and it's mm -hmm. not that, that like you say they're not hard daily habits that need to be like ticked off but it, it feels like okay this suite of options might be um helpful for me to <laughs> to jig me out of of something and of and of course um it's hard for us to accept. I think it's hard for me to accept that those things actually had an impact. I thought, nah, I can just get on with it by my thinking. I yeah, can just yeah. set my head on being all right and being uh, an optimist. And often that, that I appreciate where that gets me. But mm -hmm. to then think, okay, maybe that stuff is affected by a lot of your other choices. Yeah, it's a bit of a wake up. Yeah, um, and and it's it is. I think you know, in that space where your mental health you know might not be doing great um and that means different things to different people for some yeah. people that might mean yeah. you know a diagnosis for other people that means i'm not as chirpy as i used to be i mean i've got a friend who i think he's the most enthusiastic people person like uh, he's got so much energy and over lockdown he just you know kind of retreated from that and it was quite yeah. challenging for him so everyone's affected um yeah it is just that that kind of you know, you're having an emotional response to something more often than not, like your mental health is kind of, that's where it's coming from. It's something that you're discovering rather than something right. that you're imposing, but you do need that yeah. kind of logical, rational side of you 
And what I've noticed, at least, is that it's the spaces over lockdown where I haven't had another voice to check me. I haven't had another person to talk to um, about something. When that kind of, you know, that that like negative mental health or mm. just kind of weird thoughts will come into your head. And in those moments, it can be quite difficult to fend them off by yourself. I mean, yeah. Yeah, what what was the old quote? Like, no man is an island. It's like right. it's it is that idea. Like, we do need that connection. And I think yeah. that even people yeah. I know who have Oh man. You know, like well, Oh, you cut off. Cut off for a second. Oh, you're back. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like, even people I know who thrive in that space yeah. being by themselves were like, I've had enough. Like, and I need to move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, mate, it's been um such a pleasure chatting and um thank you for the inspiration of seeing uh your curiosity create something and thanks for putting it uh putting it out there because it's just been really fascinating i love it um we're chatting about a good way you know a good way to end be really interested if you would share uh one of your either you had a quote or you had a, a prayer um in in the language uh love it if you would you would share it in the language and then let us know what it means and that'd be a great place to, to land us <laughs> fantastic well i think since we've uh since we've spoken about tolkien a little bit um it might be apt to to end on one of his quotes as translated into aguere todos lo de vere vagebe via se apres ningus meosse e ave fave arpanese supivoe supiveosse faraceatissie even darkness must pass, a new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine all the clearer. Love it. James Brown, thank you. Thank you for having me. What a man. I loved talking to James, and I was left pretty relieved that curiosity and thinking a little alternatively could be a great encouragement and resource for the future. You can check him out at j.brown.93 and on jbrownguitar on Instagram. Check him out there. Thanks for joining the conversation today. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line. Mark Cameron at markcameron.co. You want to talk about coaching, podcasts, music, check it out there. <laughs>